Hey, this is Rod Cleef, and you are listening to the Mailbox Money Show with Bronson Hill. This is the Mailbox Money Podcast, and I am Bronson Hill. As a busy professional, I wrestled with how to grow my income without taking up more of my precious time. I learned that managing real estate, actively trading stocks, or being unable to scale up investments is not passive investing. This is the place where you'll discover new asset classes, develop investing skills, and learn from experts how to become financially free with less work than you thought possible. And now, get ready for truly passive income. We're going to have a great conversation today about uh, what's happening right now in the world, what's happening in economics, what's happening uh, everywhere. So if somebody can put something in the chat, just so I can know that we have people that can actually Put in the chat where you're coming in from. Looks like we've got a handful of people live as we're getting started. Okay, we got Tokyo. That's always awesome. The first comments from Tokyo. David, love it. Um, okay, awesome. So the chat is working. So what we're going to do, kind of the format for tonight, is we're going to um, basically go through uh, just a brief introduction for each person that's here. We're going to uh, chat for a while for different things, you know, stuff about uh, interest rates, where's the Fed headed, what does it mean for investing, what does it look like in the precious metal space. If you're unfamiliar with the precious metal space, these two guys are, are super uh, into precious metals. I'm also a precious metals guy as well. Um, and then just also, what are some other trends that are happening? How can we take advantage of different investing trends? Because if you're an investor, uh, you should be looking at how can I make money and what are some risks and ways I could lose money. So let's take a few minutes and we'll just do a, a brief introduction. Let's start with Jay. Maybe you could just take a minute and just give a, a brief introduction about your uh, experience and who you are and uh, and uh, what your expertise is. Yeah, certainly. Thanks, Bronson. It's uh, great to be back here. Uh, my name is Jay. I'm an investor mainly focused on the small cap equity space. I have, tend to have a lot of exposure to the commodity sector, and I do right now, absolutely. Um, I run a podcast called The Jay Martin Show, and it's a YouTube and podcast. We started this show really to benefit my own portfolio. It was like, I want to sit down with money managers who have been in the game and made more money than I have. And I want to chat with them a few times a week to stress test the theses that I'm excited about. Um, we started that a few years ago and it, it, um, it's, uh, kind of taken off in its own way. And so it's now the, the full-time gig. I also publish a weekly op-ed where I don't necessarily talk so much about managing money as I do on the podcast, on the, the weekly, uh, newsletter, I talk about managing, uh, the mind, which in my opinion is the most important tool in the investor toolkit. So we jump into all kinds of fun content, like identifying investor biases, heuristics, blind spots, how and when to trust intuition in the market and when not to, um, and lots of fun stuff like that. And I produce uh, one annual investment conference in Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, it's focused on the precious metals and hard asset space. It's coming up in a few months here. Awesome. Thanks, Jay. We found out before the, on the call or two, um, everybody on this uh, webinar or this video is a extreme athlete or has been at one point. So David did you know competitive triathlons. Jay does currently... I'm doing Spartan races, not the length that these guys have done, but uh, I'm excited to be uh, chatting about that as well. Uh, David, why don't you uh, give people a little introduction of who you are and what it is you're doing? All right. I've uh, been almost obsessed about money at an early age. Don't ask me why. It just hit me. And I've been studying money and the consequences thereof for most of my life. Uh, if you want to learn more, just go to my website, themorganreport.com. On the far right, pull out the about column or tab rather, the about tab, and you can read more. And there is a video there for free. It's called The Four Horsemen Film. It's uh, about 10 years old. It's a documentary about the end of the age of empire. Uh, I'm in it, but that's not the reason to watch it. There's better brains than mine that are in that movie. And it's probably a classic as far as I'm concerned. If it's anyone that's kind of questioning where are we, where are we going, what's happening to us, that movie answers most of those questions. That's awesome. I've actually seen the show. I think that's how I first first learned about you, David, years ago. It was just that I think that Four Horsemen movie was great. Or you were quoted, I think, on Hidden Secrets of Money as well. You had some some, some right. blurbs in there, which was a great uh, YouTube series. Um, awesome. Well, tonight what we're going to do is we're going to jump into uh, you know economics, what's happening right now. And again, what we said is is not only you know if if you're here and you're interested in this, likely you are an investor. You have investable assets. You have money invested, whether it's in real estate, the stock market, in metals. And it's just really important that you take time and educate yourself from and hear from smart people. So I've I've loved getting around conversations around this topic 
and just having a panel because what happens is one kind of jumps on the what the other person said and we can kind of go for it there. But let's um, let's start with Jay. Why don't you give us a little uh, kind of what you're seeing right now? Obviously, there's been big changes. The Fed has pretty dramatically increased rates. Uh, we've seen some some challenges. You know, being in the real estate space, we've seen some real challenges there with deals. I don't know how it is. I know you live in Canada. But I'd love to hear, you know, both kind of what you're seeing from a U.S. and a Canadian perspective is kind of what, you know, kind of a big picture. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, big picture, I'd say, um, I'd say patience for me right now is the trade. And um, there's a couple of really unique opportunities that I'm, I'm sort of walking into right now uh, from an investment standpoint. Happy to, to talk about those. Um, but um, generally, I just see too many fractures of uncertainty and vulnerability throughout every vertical, um, both Canada and the US, whether you're looking at residential, commercial, real estate, whether you're looking at the equities market, um, whether you're looking at at um, just general economic data. Um, I think we're in some kind of a significant transition period right now. And there's too many cards in the air for me to make a good call on how they're going to fall. And so as a consequence, I kind of like being in this position, to be honest with you. It's it's a position where I think more investors should be scared than, than are, frankly speaking. Um, and, uh, and, um, it's, uh, it's, it's a great place to be. If you have a bit of liquidity, if you're not scared to make bets that other people are running from, um, and, um, if you're comfortable in that seat, you know, it's actually a pretty interesting market to be watching. Um, I'm not touching the broad equities market right now. I, I think that's a crazy place to be. Um, I think the analogy, you know, trying to pick up nickels on a, on a train track is, is kind of the analogy I'd use there. Um, I, I typically don't touch the broad equities market though. I should qualify that a little bit. I'm pretty barbelled out in my portfolio in general. I like super boring, stable, hard assets on one end. And I like super high risk speculative opportunities on the other. And I, I don't put much in the middle. Um, and so as a course of, of my business, having a lot of, uh, eyes and ears on this on the street in the small cap equity space um i'm pretty uh pretty exposed to the junior mining sector right now um the reason you know i i'm excited about that industry today is because um i can walk into cash flowing very well managed gold producing companies with zero competition whatsoever because everybody um, hates them in terms of everybody in the market generally has very low risk tolerance right now. And, and if you're clear on your time horizon and you're a value investor, not a short-term trader, um, you know, there's lots of opportunities like that uh, that are quite hated in the marketplace that are starved of capital uh, where there is presently very low liquidity. So you got to be cool with that and and know that it's going to be a long game, could be a long game. Um, for example, if, if I'm buying a, a surplus of mid-tier gold producers right now, it's not because I expect them to take off in the next couple of quarters. That's, that's not why. I'm just buying them because they're they're very, very cheap and they're well-run businesses with managers who have a track record of success. And I think the fundamentals for the assets that people run to you when they're really scared are, are really good. And, and typically precious metals are one of those. Um, and outside of that, you know, I'm, I'm uh, fairly exposed to Canadian real estate. Um, my family's dual citizens. I'm Canadian. My wife's American, and so we're we're sort of actively looking through a couple of markets south of the border. But again, it's like I, I think there's probably some some big shakes to come, and and I don't think it's a environment where we're in a rush to do anything necessarily. So there's a couple of thoughts for you, Bronson. Yeah, I appreciate it. That's really great. I love that you you know you have insight both in in real estate as well as of course the metal space. You know very well, and you know, you're really familiar with some of those companies because you have a lot of inside information. I've known some of these people for for many years, which is great. Um, David, I know you're also an insider in the metal space, so it's kind of cool how this panel worked out to be uh, just you know metals guys that are so. Um, but I love I love talking to metals guys because there's always um, there's just a huge emphasis I think on minimizing the downside risk, and there's also potential for you know, looking at the big upsides, like where are the big upsides, whether the miners or different things. And I know you're involved in a lot of different things. So give us a little bit of a background about, uh, you know, our listeners or the audience, a little bit of background about yourself. Well, I've been uh, studying the markets and all markets, you know, bond market, currency markets, real estate market, but I've focused primarily on the, what we used to call the honest money movement, gold and silver for most of my life. And I did that because logic dictated such. When I learned how the banking system worked and that all fiat, fiat fails at some point, 
then that kind of guided me into the precious metals. And I was a very big, I guess you would call a newsletter junkie back when I was late teens, early 20s. Uh, and I kept that for probably till I was 25 or so before I started to kind of separate the wheat from the chaff. Uh, Jim Dimes was one I found first. And uh, in fact, I had uh, tapes to an investment conference where he spoke with many others, James Sibbett, Jim Sinclair, Howard Ruff, all these names are probably foreign to your listeners because of my age, but these were kind of the stalwarts back in the day. And of course, then the next generation came up and I'm one of them. And um, so I've been biased toward honest money for a long time. I think what people don't know is the facts and the facts that I've gotten. In fact, I was on a, a one of my earlier radio shows. It's a mainstream radio show. It's put on the people were, I wouldn't say anti-gold, but they certainly didn't understand it. And it was a talk show. So a guy called in. And, oh, he's just a gold bug. Like he just dismissed me. What he didn't know is that the compounded annual growth rate on gold is about 9% compounded for over two decades. And it's outperformed everything in that time frame. Real estate, the S&P, the bond market, you name it. And that's an investor. Investor wants to buy and hold something that grows over time. In fact, for quite a long time. I mean, Berkshire Hathaway, for example, has uh, done quite well. But at one point, and I'm not talking one point for two months, talking over a decade, Gold Corp outperformed Berkshire Hathaway. But unless you're a gold bug, you never would have known that. So there's a lot to be said about diversification. And there's a lot to be said about portfolio maximization. And to get a maximization out of your portfolio, it has to be weighted correctly. And the correct weighting for gold from 1968 to right now is 25% weighting. Now, most people like me don't even recommend that high of weighting. I'm more conservative at like 10%. But if you want to maximize it, the numbers don't lie. It'll be a 25% weighting. I didn't say gold stocks. I said gold. Moving on to what Jay said, I just want to add on. He's right on, as usual. And uh, we are at a point where we really have never been as far as the difference, the delta between the metals itself and the underlying equities. If you want real value, and there's value in silver, there's still value in gold, but the real value lies in the mining sector. We have not had this discrepancy. And now a lot of people and their friends of mine will tell you that you're actually better off owning the metal only instead of the equities. And there are times where that's true, but if you know what you're doing, that's it could be proven differently. In other words, at the top of the gold market in 2011, September, gold was roughly 2000. And my top tier pick, that is my favorite stock, was 50 bucks. Stock is now 150 bucks. So that'd be the equivalent of gold at 6,000 right now. And many of us on the more conservative end say, well, we expect gold to hit at least 5,000. May hit 10,000, may hit 20. I don't know. What I do know is that owning the right equities, and I load it up because it's a type of stock you can, uh, does quite well. So, and again, that's an investment. That's not a whatever, not to say anything negative toward Jay. I mean, he knows the sector probably better than anyone, but when you're playing in the macro cap stock, you got to be very, very disciplined and very, very careful because these stocks can be a burning match. They look good one day and they burn out the next. So you got to be careful there. I do play in that space but not that heavily. I'm too old and too wise, I'd say, in my opinion, because I learned the hard way. When I was in that 18 to 25 age bracket, I thought, well, I'm going to get rich quick. All I have to do is buy a bunch of juniors. I learned that's not the way to do it. So back to you. Yeah, absolutely. No, I appreciate the background. We're going to jump into metals too. I think there we have some folks on here that are less familiar or very interested in learning more about metals. So we're going to jump in that as well. Let's let's come back to a minute for the what's happening right now with the Fed, with rates being high. Um, I know, obviously, when rates are higher, it makes it harder for real estate investors. We've you know, seen some pain uh, you know, in things as valuations coming down for, for commercial real estate, or even you know, we haven't seen it as much, a little bit in residential, but a lot of people have long-term debt, at least in the U.S., where it's fixed. So it's uh, you know, this 30-year this debt, it's, it's, it's a little different. But what are you guys seeing as far as you know, the Fed has said that they're uh, almost like they're taking a pause, maybe one more for the rest of this year. Do you think, um, I mean, my thought is, is there going to be some sort of, you know, steering away from that? I think it was a couple of years ago, they said, oh, we're going to keep rates super low for the foreseeable future. And then all of a sudden that, that changed very quickly. So it, it was just a very quick pivot. 
Is there a chance that you see there's some crisis in the banking sector or some other in the economy? Oh, we're in a major recession. All of a sudden, we've got to actually lower rates. Um, what do you guys see kind of coming next for the Fed? And let's start with Jay on this. Yeah, well, I think the, you know, the next fracture line that a lot of people are watching is commercial real estate holdings, specifically of smaller regional banks. They're very, very exposed. And um, commercial real estate transactions simultaneously are almost at zero. There's almost no business occurring. Um, as far as I've seen, you know, leasing is actually not slowed down in terms of number of leases being signed this year, but it's the lease per square foot that's dropped quite a lot. And so companies are going back to the office. They just need way less space than they used to. And, you know, I, I can often just speak from personal experience when, you know, when you're watching like what's happening in your life, typically you're part of a trend, you're part of a wave. It's rarely just you, you know, we released our office space four years ago, uh, a stroke of dumb luck right before COVID. Um, we transitioned to a fully remote company and it was supposed to be temporary, but, you know, obviously we have, well, we haven't gone back and have no desire to go back. And, and uh, you know, I, I know I'm not alone in that. So the the drop per square foot, a lot of companies need physical office space. They, they can't just work completely remote, but those that, that, that need to are decreasing their demand on a per square foot basis. Um, you know, in terms of the rates discussion, it's, it's, it's a tricky one, right? Like I, I don't know what you do here, you know, um, if the Fed were to drop rates right now uh, or any time in the near future, you know, it's it's kind of stimulating to the economy. And, and if you were to stimulate into an environment where we're seeing uh, challenges and, and decreases in oil supply, prices already rising uh, to stimulate the economy into that environment could be probably incredibly inflationary relatively fast and slingshot the opposite way far faster than people think they, I mean, I, we might see, you know, a rise in inflation numbers just off the back of higher oil costs regardless. Um, and so, it, you know, it's it's more of a question mark around that, but there's a lot of variables that play into uh, to rate decisions, but you know, any stimulative action right now into a rising oil price environments can affect the price of everything uh, pretty dramatically. You know, I, you know, here's, here's what I really feel about those questions though, Bronson, when it comes to, you know, what's your forecast on the inflation numbers? What do you think about the jobs numbers or GDP or what are rates going to do all of this? You know, are we in a recession? Are we not in a recession? I tend to step back from that and, and wonder why are people wondering about those things, you know, and, and why are investors so curious about what rates might do? Why are they so curious what the inflation numbers did, what the jobs print is, all of this. And, you know, I think a lot of people are looking for a green light to just pile back into the equities market, right? And that's what they're really asking, right? Can I just shut my eyes and, and send a check away again to the FANG stocks? Is it time yet? You know, and, and I think that, uh, I don't think those days are coming back anytime soon, but, you know, I, I encourage investors who like to obsess over economic data to really just zero in on what your personal situation is and, and how that's all occurring to you right now. And so, you know, are we, are we not in a recession? Well, I don't know about you, right? I can look at the, my job security, my income growth, uh, my portfolio, um, you know, the, the price of the assets that I own and kind of make that call independently. And more investors should think that way. They should, I believe, think with more of a sovereign mindset that there's going to be all kinds of data thrown around um, daily. And most of it doesn't actually matter to most people if they just focused on on their business, you know. Um, and, you know, Powell's going to come out and say whatever he's going to say, but does it relate to what he's actually going to do or does it relate to what he wants the market to do in reaction to what he says? It's usually the latter, right? Yeah. And so, um, you know, that's so, sort of been his stance as I've interpreted it for the last couple of years. I don't know why that would change it makes logical sense but but um you know that's it's kind of what i'm watching right now bronson it does seem like there's you know like you said there's a fair amount of engineering the market and what is you know powell saying and what does he want the market to do based on that and how they're giving guidance but i think you're right you brought up something you know why do why are people so interested to learn i think there's a lot of you know people that are looking to make a quick buck and it's like hey what can i do how can i start making returns and it's it's not as easy as it was, because especially if you're a real estate investor, because maybe you own properties and the valuations dipped a little bit, or there's some challenges, or so there's some headwinds there, and it's been hard. So I think people are kind of watching. Hey, is this going to go back to 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 normal when there there maybe just be a new normal for a while, and it may change, and it's going to look different. So, um, 
David, can you uh, give some more insight into that, or what are your thoughts on on you know what's happening, where where the Fed's at, or is it something you have a longer time horizon? Like, what, how are you seeing all of the, like kind of what's happening playing out right now? Well, I'll comment on real estate first, and Jake, correct me if I'm wrong. I understand that in Canada that you really don't have these long term uh, mortgages like we have in the United States. I think you have like five years or something you have to roll over. But you can chime in in a moment, Jay. But a very conservative person usually buys their car for cash or whatever. They don't want those high interest rates. I mean, if they're low, well, then you're getting free money. Why not finance? There's zero interest rate. Well, of course you're going to you know, finance something. But as we see interest rates climbing in the real estate sector, primarily, what most people don't understand about real estate, and I'm one of the bold ones that states this, is, oh, I'm, I'm not going to rent. I have to buy. I have to buy a house and have build equity. It's an idiot's game to rent a house well the facts are that you either rent the money or you rent the house if you're a renter because if you put a mortgage on it you're renting the money money is commodity like potatoes and the interest rate is the cost of money now going back to the car analogy when you buy a car on time you say well what's the payment but again if you're conservative or you're a saver or you have the ability you probably buy cash if the interest rates at you know, seven, eight, nine. I mean, it varies person to person, as Jay pointed out. You got to be your own boss. But on a house, apartment building, office building, almost all of that is based upon the cost of money. So the thought isn't about what's the building cost. Of course, that factors into it. But the bottom line is, what is my payment? And so the higher the interest rates go, the higher the payment, obviously which prices more and more people out of the market. And if it goes very high, then people that have, let's say, stayed on the sidelines and seen what's coming, they could come in as cash buyers or cash out the mortgage, let's say, buy the mortgage down or whatever. There's lots of things. And you know, I've done the real estate market. I, I own some real estate. So that's number one. On the Powell situation, I think he is going to continue to raise. Now, he might pause and just raise one more time this year as you outline Bronson, but I don't think it's over yet. I think he's going to continue to, to raise until the international banking sector versus the Federal Reserve has their war. And that's my take. It's contrarian to the contrarian. I think the Fed wants the dollar to win. And the way the dollar wins is you keep increasing interest rates because it's doing better than any other currency. And you do that until you do have in place the new system. It's obvious for any of us to study the mon monetary problem that banks, generally speaking, worldwide and they're international, the IMF pretty much runs them all, need a new system. The old one is broken. But the dollar in the owners of the Fed's mind want to make sure that the dollar retains its status uh, going forward into the new system. And the new system isn't like a click of a switch right now. Yeah, we're all pretty much on digital dollars, but that is not a CBDC. So I contend that there will not be a rollover into the new system, one that's easy, and two, that's going to be as soon as some people think. Now, I could be off on that, but I do think that we have more interest rates raises ahead of us and it's going to bring more misery to, to the economy. It's also deflationary. If you take a high interest rate, let's just go from you know, the 5% we are right now to 10%. I mean, the long bond, if you have to turn it into cash, has lost a lot of value because you have to discount it to the present value. And by discounting it to the present value, if you did it across the board, then you would have a huge loss in real terms, if you had to cash them in. So I think I've got enough of my you know, financial outlook. Um, and some people, I didn't try to talk over anyone's heads. I'm just trying to give them that there are countervailing forces between inflation and deflation at all times. And one thing to bear in mind is that all inflations end in deflation. You look at Zimbabwe, what happened? $100 trillion Zim note was printed and not even used because the currency had failed before that German printing company could get it to Zimbabwe to be used in the economy. Hmm. Such, I have a hundred trillion dollar bill on the shelf here. So I didn't know that was actually never actually brought to Zimbabwe. So that's good to know. Um, let's talk for a bit. We are going to get to some questions in a little bit for our audience. So 
Um, you know, stay tuned. In the, in the next few minutes, we will get to some questions. I want to talk specifically about opportunities for investors, right? So, you know, every challenge, every crisis presents an opportunity. So we talked a little bit before the call and even some of our questions about, uh, you know, there's $130 trillion that have taken this climate uh, climate pledge, $130 trillion in the U.S., or excuse me, in the world, that have actually, uh, of fund managers that have said, we're only going to do clean types of energy. And I think 16 trillion of these are net zero pledges, meaning they will not invest in fossil fuels. Uh, what kind of opportunities does the ESG agenda create for whether it's oil and gas or mining or other sectors that might be out of favor from some of those? Jay, do you have an opinion on that? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a huge disconnect between the uh, parties that are calling for net zero typically also calling when it comes to minerals in general to leave it in the ground. Right. And you can't have both those things. And uh, you know, it's, it's um, it's easy to call out a bad guy and to point to problems in the world and say, yes, we need to reduce our carbon emissions. Yes. Uh, fossil fuels are a finite resource. We need to find a replacement. Th those things are true, but how do you replace them is the question. And in order to build the infrastructure, uh, battery power and technology that we'd need to transition the world off of fossil fuels would create the biggest rush the mining industry has ever seen. Um, and I'm okay, great. I mean, that, that provides a huge wealth creation opportunity for commodity investors, uh, especially in the, in the, the mining industry. Um, are those same parties who are saying, you know, we, we've got to get to net zero by these very aggressive, in some cases, dates, are they going to but pivot on that same platform and say, and so now we need to permit every single um, mine that's uh, in, in our pipeline because we're going to need these minerals expedited, production of these minerals expedited, ex extracted, uh, refined, and in the marketplace to be used. And I don't know if that's going to happen. So, you know, in the meantime, it'll probably be a lot more lip service and, you know, how much of it actually is, right? Like we've got a phenomenal prime minister up here in Canada who seems to miss the plot on a lot of the um, energy transition conversation, in my opinion. And, you know, Canada is a country super, super rich in uh, many of the resources that the world needs, one of which is, is gas and oil. And uh, when the German chancellor came to Canada, six months ago, begging for a natural gas deal, a commodity that we have plenty of. Um, our prime minister shut him down and said, you know, I can't make a sound business case to export natural gas to Germany. Um, but uh, we can, um, what did he, he, he promised hydrogen. We'll produce hydrogen fuel for you, even though Canada doesn't actually produce any hydrogen fuel yet. It's in the plans, right? But this is the disconnect, I think, in a lot of the, the specific to the energy transition conversation. It's like, we can all agree that you know we we do need to transition. We can agree we're we're burning a finite resource. We can agree that we want to reduce our CO two emissions. Even if you don't agree with that, let's say a lot of people do, right? Um, moving to the Plan B is not just as simple as as putting up some solar panels and spinning some windmills. There's a, a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built. The supplies of which come from sectors that have been so starved of capital for the last 15 years. We're running low on everything. It's not just copper and nickel, um, you know, the, the whole gamut of, of, of critical earths. And then the securing the supply of those, by the way, um, you know, so many of which there's only one supplier in the world or, or maybe one or two, and they're both kind of conflict labeled. So, you know, not easy to find a lot of these commodities, regardless if you were to find the capital and expedite the projects. Uh, they're in jurisdictions that aren't friendly. So, um, you know, I have three young kids. Uh, I spent the majority of my life in super small towns and I feel like I'm pretty connected to what we stand to lose if we don't take care of our planet. Like I, I feel that intimately and, and probably more personally than, than most people who, um, get on the podium and, and, and pound the table about energy transition. So I do take it seriously, you know, and I want my kids to grow up in a, in a, a clean world with access to uh, clean water and not have, um, but you know, uh, it's, there's a disconnect in terms of just understanding the second and third order uh, implications of this transition. And, and um, so long story short, you know, I think it, I think it's going to happen. I think we're going to continue to explore down that path. And um, you know, we're starting to see some big money start chasing down ideas in the mining industry. Uh, Cobalt out of the Silicon Valley, one of the more recent unicorns, billion dollar companies come out of the Silicon Valley. It's um, you know, Andreessen Horowitz, Jeff Bezos, uh, Richard Branson, Bill Gates, um, and they're investing aggressively, trying to create a Google Maps of the Earth's crust to understand where all these commodities are. And then they're financing uh, companies specifically in the copper and cobalt sectors. 
um, to try to expedite production of these um, critical minerals. And there's a handful of projects like that um, that we're now just beginning to see emerge. And so um, it's some fresh capital moving to the space, which which could move the needle in the right direction. Um, and then just, you know, as an aside, I don't want to digress too much, but David just touched on the, the Canadian market a little bit. You're right, David. So we typically have, you know, three and five year fixed uh, mortgages over 25 years, which leaves a lot of Canadians very exposed. And I think even in 2022, something like 70% of Canadian mortgages were variable rate anyways. So they've already bumped up. Um, having said that, there's something unique about Canadian home buyers. I don't you know, there's 1.5 million mortgages in this country, only 7,000 of which are over 90 days delinquent. Canadians just tend to pay their mortgages or they have thus far. We'll see what happens um, because, you know, I, I do know a handful of people now that are quite squeezed um, getting into a variable rate two years ago and now they can't afford the property they're in. So that may change, right? I, I guess you probably could have said that in the U.S. in 2006, but but um, yeah, a couple thoughts there, Rosson. No, that's great. I appreciate that. No, I think, uh, you know, I think like you said, I appreciate the, you know, we, we do want to uh, have a, a, you know, clean earth and, and, you know, you know, outdoorsy guys as well. So we want to make sure there's a place there for our kids and place that we all can enjoy. Uh, but some of the agenda stuff we find, and it's funny, interesting in California, you know, I live in Los Angeles and it's just, there's so much, you know, if we have a hurricane or if there's a flood or say, oh, that's because of, you know, global warming, or it's because it's, there's so much agenda behind all this stuff. And it just feels like um, actually they've passed some laws with this ESG, you know, by 2030, they've said they're not going to build, allow new homes to be built in California that have gas heating or have gas stoves. And so then what's the alternative, right? You use electricity. And I think about 50% of electricity in California, 40 to 50% is, is created by burning fossil fuels, either, either coal or natural gas. And most of it's imported from other states. So anyway, there's, it's just interesting, this agenda. Um, David, why don't you jump in here? What are you seeing as far as, uh, you know, both, I would say, wh where do you see opportunities as an investor? Obviously, we're doing an oil and gas deal right now we're really excited about. We see there's a lot of underinvestment in areas, whether it's mining or energy or things like that. What are some opportunities that you're seeing because of the ESG agenda? Well, as Jay said, just to repeat, I mean, you can't have it both ways. You can't have... <clears throat> Uh, all EVs and not tear up the earth. In fact, if you really went to all electric vehicles or all electric, so not just vehicles, but all power is non-coal, non-petroleum, non-hydrocarbon based, it would take an extreme amount of uh, mining, like tenfold what we have now. So if you don't want to disrupt the earth and you want to maintain the pristineness of the natural environment, it cannot be done. Um, just did a study on that. <clears throat> it actually was a study of a study. So we looked at this. This is in the Morgan Report in December of last year. So just for copper, if you wanted to go all electric, for copper, 6,700 million tons would be needed. In 2019, 20.4 20 million tons of copper were produced. So it would take 328 years. 328 years using the 2019 copper production numbers as a baseline to reach the required copper amount needed to obfuscate fossil fuels. Still got a couple more. Everyone loves lithium. So let's talk about lithium. For lithium, 1,386 million tons are needed. If we use the baseline of 2019, 0.086 million tons of lithium were produced. It would take 16,121 years using the 2019 lithium production numbers as a baseline to reach the required lithium amount needed to phase out fossil fuels. So I have to say it loudly, boldly, and strongly. I'm getting too old to take too much BS anymore. If you're going the ESG route all the way through, you better talk to me because you're out of your mind if you really think this thing's going to have legs for very long. Is that yeah. bold enough? <laughs> Love it. No, that's, that's great. That's <clears throat> awesome. Um, we're going to start taking some questions in a few minutes. If you have any questions, you can put them in the chat or in the question, the Q&A area as well. I'm going to keep asking questions, but if you do have questions, please do jump in. Um, so let's talk about, uh, you know, I think, you know, as an investor, I know a lot of people, their motive for being here is just, you know, what are, what are the opportunities? 
Obviously, people can own physical precious metals. That's one way to go. They can own, you know, mining stocks. They can own commodities. Um, are there any other sectors or any other opportunities that you're seeing that, hey, this, I feel like this is, this does look really attractive right now? Or do you feel like, hey, if I sit on cash for a little bit or if I buy metals and sit on that, I can still have some liquidity by borrowing against the value of it? Or how are you, how are you playing uh, right now? Or maybe just what's your kind of your mix right now? How do you think a good allocation? For yourself is maybe we start with Jay and just see what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, certainly. So uh, once again, I, I do use a fairly barbelled approach, which means on one end and the larger end of my portfolio, it's all quite boring hard assets. What I qualify as a boring hard asset to me is is real estate, cash, gold. I put Bitcoin in there. I know that sounds crazy given the volatility. Um, I'll just qualify it quickly and just say that my my bet on Bitcoin is simply a bet on demographics. If you look right now at investors who um, have exposure versus versus they they damn it, you know it's it's typically um, split down in, in age divide. And so when I say it's a bet on demographics, I just say that the generation younger than me is not thinking twice. They're native digitals, sorry, digital natives. Um, and they're not awkward about utilizing digital currencies or living their lives online. I don't think that trend's going to slow down. And so I don't think adoption of um, assets like Bitcoin will slow down either. Uh, so I, I think that we'll see the volatility slow down. I, I'm by no means a, um, a Bitcoin maxi or heavily exposed. It's a very small part of that barbell for me, but I absolutely want a horse in the race just because I see it as a bet on demographics moving favorably towards those assets. And then on the speculative side, that's where I, that's where I ideally uh, <laughs> generate money. Um, and that's the early stage, you know, startup world, right? And so uh, well, that could be early stage commodity companies and a lot of venture tech deals, um, heavily interested, not always heavily exposed to uh, food technology and, um, and uh, had some, some really great wins on that side of the, of the uh, portfolio, and and right now, um, you know, we're we're working on a couple companies. Uh, one in the alternative milk space, we're looking at a, a sesame milk product. Actually, it's kind of alternative, but uh, in terms of environmental sustainability, price, and nutrition, um, you know, it's it's a phenomenal source of uh, of of an alternative nut milk. And the uh, nut milk space has been a great place to have invested cash over the last ten years, and. And um, the transition towards plant-based foods is, is still moving that direction. Um, and so we've got some, some interesting exposure to some alternative uh, foods over there. I am, like I said, heavily invested in the, in the commodity sector. And, you know, what that looks like for me right now is, is step one, like understanding duration. As I said, I could be allocating capital to um, mid-tier gold producers, uh, food technology. I don't think it's a good time to be investing in food technology, but it's a good time to be finding undervalued companies that are starved of capital, will take terms that are better for you. And then if you're comfortable waiting for a couple of years for those investments to mature, um, that's the story, right? And, you know, the name of the game for me is always duration, Bronson. And, you know, here's a, a fun fact. We talked about real estate a, a little bit on this call. The number one performing asset for most investors um, in the West anyway, for the last 80 years has been their principal residence. And that's not because real estate's always the best performing asset. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, but it's because it's the one asset that investors tend to hold for 25 years. And so it performs well because of duration. Um, and, um, you know, we also talked about Berkshire Hathaway earlier on the call, you know, the number one reason Warren Buffett's the Oracle that he is, is because he's been an investor for over 80 years. Mm -hmm. Um, had he rolled out the exact same portfolio strategy as he has, but had he started, you know, when he was 30 and quit when he was 65, he'd be worth less than 1% of his present net worth. And none of us would have ever heard his name. Now I'm not taking anything away from Buffett, you know um, he's the Oracle and, and all this for a reason, but you know, the number one reason that he is who he is is because he started in his early teens and he's still going in his nineties. Again, it comes back to duration, right? Um, most investors, in my experience, identify as investors, but they operate like traders. And, uh, you know, so step one to searching for any wealth creation opportunities from my standpoint is like 
first of all, figure out what kind of investor you are. And, and the way you figure that out is by ident identifying how much time you have to invest in being an investor, right? If it's an hour a day, probably don't try your luck at swing trading. Probably don't do that, right? It's actually a decent amount of time if you want to be a long-term value investor and understand that it's a lifelong game, no matter when you start, right? Compound returns take time to compound. Um, knowledge takes time to compound and investing is like anything, you know, you don't hit the gym today and get jacked tomorrow. It's a, you make it part of your lifestyle, identify the amount of time in your life you can invest in health. And over time, months and years, you really see outsized results. My portfolio is just the same. And it took me years to figure that out. Um, but, uh, but um, yeah, that's a uh, couple areas I'm looking for opportunity right now. Yeah. Happy to go into more detail. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think you you mentioned something that's really interesting. I think uh, for a lot of investors, you know, their their best investment has been their house because of just duration. And I, Warren Buffett actually talks about the idea of like what makes somebody a great investor. The best quality or personality trait somebody can have simply is a good temperament, right? That just is not always buying and holding and having to have some big home run shot every time. It's being able to be in the market, whatever market it is. And just being able to, you know, buy and hold. And that's why we found some people that actually invest in real estate and invest in private placement deals. It's actually the illiquidity is actually a big benefit to them, right? Because they can't sell, right? It's like you can't just go and you don't get a quote every day. And, you know, it's, I mean, even with metals, you get a quote every day and you can always buy and sell if the price is right. But, um, you know, sometimes having investors just be able to hold longer, commit to something can be really positive. Um, David, what, uh, what other uh, opportunities are you seeing out there right now? Well, first, I got to comment on the uh, on what you just said, Bronson. Yeah. That the, again, I'll quote Jim Dines, but he wrote a book called Market Psychology. It's a fascinating book, but and he talked about it in his letters that uh, the market will exploit any character defect you have. In other words, if you're not able to have patience, you'll sell out just before the big move. Mm -hmm. Or you know, and he also had one that I thought that stuck with me as well, and that was love what you get because it's all you're going to get. The amateur wants to get the low tick and the high tick, but the professional wants to get in within 20% of the bottom and out within 20% of the top. And trading commodities for a living, which very few people can do, I learned the hard way that you got to sell in the strength. You don't want that last tick. You want to make sure everybody wants it, give it to them. I don't know how many here are old enough to remember the movie Caddyshack, but Rodney Dangerfield <laughs> on the golf course before cell phones. As a cell phone, everybody's buying, sell. Everybody's <laughs> selling, buy. And that's what you got to be able to do, as Jay said, or no, I think it was an earlier interview, but you got to be able to be a lone wolf sometimes and trust your own gut to be able to make these moves. I think, uh, you know, anything needed is where you want to be right now. So cash is fine. I'm not a big fiat guy. Anyone that's ever listened to me knows that, but it has its place until it, you know, doesn't. Uh, gold and silver, like Jay said, buy it and put it away. You don't need to be leveraged. You don't need to be and too many small companies that move up and down and drive you nuts with their volatility, just something solid. Doesn't have to be the majority of your portfolio. 10% is probably good for most people. 20s, what I recommend if you're a stalwart, hard money advocate, uh, real estate that cash flows. I mean, a lot of people are real estate investors, bought something for, I'll just make up numbers, 100,000, and now they're worth 250 or 300. And uh, it's cash flowing. There's no reason to get rid of something like that. Even if you get a, a crash and it's cash flowing, the cash flow is going commensurate with the interest rates anyway. So you're in a great position there. It's just if you're going to re-enter the market or enter the market for the first time or add to your position, you want to think about it and think about it, I would say, long and hard at this point in time. I think the opportunities like Jay mentioned, and Jay, I always have to smile because I just, I've known you for a long time and the Knowing you before, you know, you took over with with the investment conference and I just seen you mature more and more and it just makes me feel really good. But that idea about the milk thing is is great. I'm glad to hear you say that because we, we do have to grow and expand. And, you know, one of the things about the capital formation is you really understand what the markets are supposed to be about. They're supposed to about being about pulling your capital, bring about ingenuity and innovation that makes the world better. Unfortunately, too many people are just concerned about being an investor, making a return, you know, making money with money. There's nothing wrong with that per se, but in a true stabilized, balanced economic system, about 4% regarding finance, we're like at 40% of the states. So I remember the late, great Elliot Janeway saying, you know, you've reached the end of civilization. 
when Bronson and I are sitting across on the same table from each other trying to sell each other a life insurance policy. So you could take that where you want. I would say one of the best places to look at is outside the box. There'll be a lot of people um, unemployed or misemployed. So start a business that retrains people. Start a business that teaches them a need, like a plumber, a carpenter. Uh, I don't know if software engineering will be there with the AI situation. Uh, maybe something about how to uh, micromanage a small amount of space and grow a, a high yield amount of um, calories. In other words, micro farming with uh, you know, uh, sprouting seeds and that type of thing. I think there's a lot of innovation out there that people just are not aware of that will be needs. I mean, I remember my mom and she was hardly an investor, but talking about the Great Depression and you find a need and fill it. And that's a very good, you know, three word sentence that can actually bring you really a, a great amount of, uh, of reward, both uh, spiritually and uh, financially. So I think the thing to think about is not what company do I need to invest in? And I'm, I'm not saying don't invest in what Jay said, I, I would validate. But I'm saying, get outside there and sit down with a blank piece of paper and think of something no one else has. That's almost impossible. But think about what is needed in the future. And most people need or want security. And that's why the housing sector has the demographics it has, because that's your castle. It's something you can rely on. It's still there. It's the same place. You drive in the same driveway. And there's a stability in that. People seek stability and security. So if you could bring that to them, or at least a feeling of that, I think that's an opportunity as well. So there's lots of opportunities that will take place as this greater depression unfolds. And it's not going to be like the Great Depression of the 30s. It'll be different. You'll be sitting there on your iPhone 27, and I'll be able to have a thought conversation with Jay. We'll be able to look <laughs> at each other's portfolios. <laughs> but we're also going to be paying a lot more for food and, and housing. So I'll leave it there, Bronson, back to you. Yeah, and what opportunities we could always uh, start selling insurance, right? If nothing else works out, right? <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, it was really great, great uh, comments from both of you guys. Really appreciate that. We've got time for a couple questions here. I'm going to jump in. Um, we've got uh, from Yanif, I believe, sounds like a real estate uh, broker, real estate agent. Um, there's kind of a two-part question here. What opportunities do you believe the average investor will experience? So there's some talk about cash buyers and tax deferred exchanges. And secondly, uh, with the uncertainty of interest rates, what needs to happen for us to have true price discovery? That's a very interesting conversation around asset prices. Do you want to start with that one, Jay? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not the uh, subject matter expert on the real estate sector. So um, yeah, I could talk about what I'm doing, but by no means is is that um, the the words of some veteran real estate. Yeah. I, I, I'll give some thoughts real quick. Um, and then I, I love the thought of, you know, price discovery for an asset. Um, I mean, right now, I think it's going to continue to be uh, challenging for, for real estate investors. I do think there are some opportunities we're seeing. We're seeing some valuations come down. There's some unique situations, uh, particularly in the syndication space for multifamily where uh, people are assuming loans. Um, we Stuff we're finding is not quite as crazy or as sexy as it was before as far as you know crazy high returns but people are are in my opinion more interested in having uh just reasonable um you know just getting a reasonable return i think in the residential market i think it's going to be really interesting is i think if rates do not come down or don't come down for a while people just are having trouble affording properties and eventually people will move or things are going to happen and it just will lead to lower pricing and opportunities there i think um as far as price discovery i mean you're right right now with the Fed just raising rates so sharply, um, the price of anything. Look at what prices have done the last few years. A lot of commodity prices have gone up a lot in real estate. Um, you know, they they haven't really because people just can't afford it. So I think there's a lot to that and a lot of levels to that. Um, uh, anything to add, Jay? Or did you? I have. There's another question here too. Somebody's asking about the long game. Like, how do you play the long game, and how do you work out numbers for many different conditions? And maybe you can just talk a little more about your time horizon in approaching things and how that differs from somebody who's more of a trader or more of a short-term view. Yeah, certainly. Well, okay. So when I talk about duration and long-term time horizon, 
I invest like that as a consequence of having zero confidence that I can time the markets. I just, I do not believe I or anybody can do that um, uh, with any sort of sustainable uh, uh, performance. Definitely not me. So if I can time the markets, then I have no other choice uh, than to go in for long duration and excuse myself from trying to time all the short-term volatility, which is guaranteed. So for example, you know, on the stable side of my portfolio, the barbell, you know, I, I do invest in real estate. If, you know, on the speculative side, if I should generate some returns, should I be so lucky? I don't leave it in the speculative side. I pull that over to the solid side of the barbell, typically put that in real estate. I'm comfortable investing in Canadian real estate today. Um, uh, I, I made my pause on rates like we're seeing right now, but just as a consequence of Inventory is stagnant, new production, there's nothing happening. And Canada's let in uh, just under 1 million new immigrants over the last 12 months. Now, Canada's only got 37 million people. So a jump of a million is colossal, especially in a country where there's no new inventory coming online. And so it's simple supply and demand economics over a long term. Um, I'm comfortable parking cash here for a long time. Um, and, um, and, you know, there's, there's, there's local markets in, in real estate, as I've experienced, right? You can't paint an entire country with the same brush. Um, I, I've not seen that so much anyways. And so um, I just look at where capital is being invested from an infrastructure standpoint. Um, and uh, those are the towns that I tend to invest in. So I'm not like in a city like Vancouver or Toronto. Um, you know, I, I own in, in smaller towns uh, that have uh, great growth trajectories, high quality of living. Um uh, diverse economies at a small scale, um, and are being, um, are the recipients of, of large amounts of commercial capital and new infrastructure schools and all this stuff. And so the town that I live in, it's 20,000 people, you know, we've got a couple places here. Um, it's a great little mountain town kind of, you know, natural borders, coastal mountains, Pacific ocean. It's a beautiful little spot, um, an hour away from Whistler mountain, British Columbia. So it's, you know, it's got a lot going on in terms of, uh, lifestyle attraction. And it's one of those towns that's been a big benefactor of people fleeing the cities to live close to, but not in metropolises. So those are the areas that I'm looking at. Um, you know, gold also on that side of the portfolio in terms of time horizon, it's like gold does two things for me. Like it gives me confidence, which is really important just to be able to walk through the world knowing I've got an insurance policy with zero counterparty risk that I can cash out at any time. Um, and that's that's the second thing it is for me is that, that option on cash. Um, it's an option on liquidity. In theory, it's a money in, no money out asset for me. I, I like to just acquire it and hope to just leave it to my kids. Having said that, I've called that option a couple of times. Um, once was for a real estate transaction that came um, to my desk fairly quickly and I had to close on fast. I was short on liquidity, so I was able to liquidate some of my gold. I actually wrote myself a promissory note, borrowed in ounces from myself, uh, purchased the real estate had a, a term of six months to pay back in ounces um, the debt to the Bank of J and uh, with a fee of some additional ounces. And it's really like empowering actually to to operate your your personal picture that way. So so gold's that. It's it's the it's the moat around the castle, right? We talked about the castle. Well, gold's the moat in, in my um, opinion. Uh, but it's also that optional liquidity, which has come in handy for me a couple of times. Um, and then on the speculative side, when it, when it comes to duration or, or time horizon, you know, it's, uh, I just look at the businesses we're investing in, right? And um, if I've got a lot of confidence in the entrepreneur, if I've got a, a lot of confidence in the growth of the industry, um, I can't predict liquidity cycles in the venture market. I can't predict, um, you know, market performance, but I can look at the health of the business. Is the entrepreneur hitting her milestones, his or her milestones, right? And am I comfortable uh, being a shareholder and owner of this company? And that's how I think about it. I don't trade the share price, right? I own the company. Uh, which just changes your frame of mind around how and when you might want to liquidate a position like that. Um, but my my typical hold period on the speculative side is is maybe three to seven years. Um, now I've definitely gotten lucky if a swing has occurred in in a in a quicker timeline, but I don't credit my intelligence to that, or I, I try not to. It's hard uh, when you have a quick win that you didn't expect. You can feel really smart. But um, nothing's compared. Like even if I've had those wins every now and then, nothing's compared to um, when I've been on the team uh, with an entrepreneur for a good three to five years and, and he or hers hit all their markers. Uh, we've been able to support on a capital markets front. They've delivered on all their milestones though. Those are the wins that have really changed my life when I've been able to uh, 
to sit on the bus for three to five years is kind of my optimal time horizon for venture listed companies. That's great, man. A lot, a lot of good nuggets there. I uh, hope you're paying attention and we'll, we'll have the replay available of this as well. If you want to go back and listen again, uh, we are going to take a pause here for a minute, make a couple announcements, and then we're going to ask how you can uh, or let you know how we can keep in touch with you. Uh, our next event is going to be uh, September 27th, which is a Wednesday at 4 p.m. with Ken McElroy and Ellie Perlman talking about real estate. They're, they're big time leaders. Ken's authored multiple books and works with Robert Kiyosaki uh, for his real estate, uh, all of his real estate stuff. So that's coming up. There's one other event I wanted to let everybody know about. Uh, myself and a partner named Stephanie Boldrini are doing an event in Los Angeles. Um, it's October 19th and 20th. It's called the Advanced Real Estate Investing Summit. Um, and if you use the code SUMMIT20, you can still get the super early bird price. Uh, we are starting to fill up on that one. And we just added a guy named David Green. David Green hosts the Bigger Pockets podcast, which is the number one real estate podcast in the US. So we've got some amazing speakers there. Uh, Mark Moss, uh, Ken McElroy, uh, Neil Bawa, a bunch of bunch of big stars. So check that out. Um, wanted to go. We'll start with David. Um, how can people follow what you're doing? Maybe just talk a little bit about what you're working on and how people can just take a minute and just how people can can follow you or get in touch with you, David. Well, the main uh, landing page is themorganreport.com. Uh, sign up for the free information that I put out every week, and there's also paid service if you want to learn about that there's a subscriber tab that you can pull down uh <clears throat> i would like to just talk real briefly about you know what you asked jay and i would say the best thing i can offer is the book uh by harry brown or at least the information called permanent portfolio all markets move up and down so and they go from fair value to overvalued to undervalued or, and and not in that sequence undervalued fair valued overvalued and in that book, or in that, I'm not sure he wrote a book, but in the permanent portfolio guidelines, you have a diversification, bonds, stocks, real estate, cash, and precious metals. And you do a tally every year, but you could do it every five years. And you have a certain percentage that you start with. And then after that year, you look at the percentage. So what's overvalued, like real estate, you sell down until it reaches the percentage of what you started with. And you look at what's underperforming and you buy into that. So you balance the portfolio based on what's going to be undervalued and sell what's overvalued. It's a very interesting way to invest. And it's really a good guidance for people that lack discipline to stay throughout the sectors, the main sectors, and continue to basically do very, very well. Awesome. Hey, David, thanks so much. Really appreciate you being here today. Thanks for, for sharing. Uh, Jay, how can people follow you, get in touch with you, hear about your conference and your events? Uh, thanks. Yeah. So first of all, I just got to gotta shout out the Morgan Report. You know, I've been a follower of David's for like 12, 13 years. David was actually the mentor to my mentor. So one of the first uh, individuals in the commodity sector was Marion Katusa that kind of took me into his office and was like, you know, I used to sit down in his office for two, three hours a week sometimes and just pick his brain on business challenges I was going through or just commodity investing in general. And Marin credits David for showing him the game when he entered the space. So um, go to themorganreport.com. That's for sure. That's a good place to start. But uh, very appreciative of you, David, and all the time you spent giving back to um, investors like myself as we come up in the game. And and uh, your experience is invaluable, buddy. So I, I really do appreciate you. Um, I'm easy to find. It's the Jay Martin show on, uh, wherever you listen to your podcasts or on YouTube, um, the Jay Martin letter on Substack, easy to find there. And we're actually producing a, I'll, if I can pump a little bit here, uh, yeah. we're, on some, we're sure. producing commodity university. It's like a commodity investment 101 course. We're releasing that in a week and a half. Mm. Um, and for anybody who's looking to, to learn enough about investing in the commodity space to start to construct a portfolio and be aware of the most uh, prevalent risks and how to look for the biggest rewards, um, just su subscribe to my Substack and you'll get the notification when we publish that in about a week and a half here. And then uh, I produce an annual investment conference in Vancouver, British Columbia. It's called the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. And all that information for that is at cambridgehouse.com. You can find it all there. Awesome. Well, guys, uh, Jay, David, really appreciate you guys. I've learned a ton from you over the years. Really appreciate it being connected to you, uh, your events, your resources. And just really want to encourage everybody to reach out to them, whether you're joining us live or watching this on a replay. But thank you, gentlemen, for joining today. Thank you to our audience as well. And we'll look forward to the next uh, panel next month with Ken McElroy 
and uh, Ellie Perlman. So thanks so much, guys. Pretty have a wonderful night. Thanks, buddy. Thanks. Okay. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to the Mailbox Money Podcast. For more free resources, articles, and videos, go to bronsonequity.com. There you can download your copy of the special report, The Single Best Investment Strategy During and After a Pandemic. None of the information shared here is an offer to buy a specific investment, and this is for educational purposes only. Consult your financial, legal, and tax professionals and use your own common sense before making any investment decisions. Thanks for joining us, and be sure to tune next time for more Mailbox Money.